You're listening to the Business of Environment podcast with Mark Roman. Welcome, everyone, to the Business of Environment podcast, where we explore insights on the intersection of business, the environment, and regulation. I'm your host, Mark Roman, and today I'm certain that you'll find our guest extremely valuable. Joining us today is Bob Murphy. Bob is the Director of Engineering and Environmental for NINA. NINA is a market leader in the creation and manufacturing of papers for premium writing, text cover, digital packaging, and label applications. Bob's an engineer with over 30 years of experience in manufacturing and heavy industry as a plant and environmental engineer. His background includes nuclear submarine construction, pretty cool, merchant marine shipping, papermaking, and microelectronic materials manufacturing. Bob's a graduate of the Massachusetts Maritime Academy with a Bachelor of Science degree in marine engineering. I've known Bob for over 20 years and consider him to be one of the best, if not the best, process engineers I've ever worked with. Bob's very knowledgeable and detail-oriented, you know, like most engineers are. However, what sets Bob apart and above is his ability to efficiently identify the root cause of an issue and to determine the most cost-effective solution in a very timely manner. In other words, Bob gets things done. A fellow colleague once told me, it doesn't matter if it's a capital improvement project, a production machine being down, um, an environmental health and safety issue, or, or really anything else that needs fixing, you can bank on Bob to get the job done. Bob's been a client, a colleague, and most importantly, a very good friend for many years, even though he is a lifelong New England Patriots fan. I'd like to welcome Bob to the Business of Environment podcast. Thanks, and, Mark. And, uh, and welcome, Bob. And, and beyond the, the brief bio I just went through, can you let everyone know a little bit more about your background and, and really what was the path that eventually led you to managing environmental issues? Right. Well, I think like a lot of environmental engineers that maybe have my tenure, um, there really wasn't a position for an environmental engineer. And uh, by default, the plant engineer picked up those tasks. And that was the, that was the case for me. Um, I was a plant engineer in a small mill, and these environmental regulations started to roll out, and they needed somebody to take care of it. So, um, so I did. And that was in the infancy of, of the regulations, really. And, and since then, a lot of other EHS programs have have come out, and uh, you've got to adapt and learn and and come in compliance. So um, that's really how I got my start. I, I have to ask, what led you to the Merchant Marine Academy? Oh well, growing up, I, I grew up in Newport, Rhode Island, and it, so I had access to some watercraft and actually a, a small private island that a, uh, a wealthy man owned. And so I, I kind of fell in love with the sea, um, fishing. I uh, had a little lobster boat where I, I caught lobsters. So um, I thought I'd try to make a career out of it and uh, went to the Maritime Academy, which was a great experience. And and uh, I, I, just as a side note, you got to tell our listeners about your, your brief uh, pass with Hollywood, if you will. Oh, that's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, well, growing up, my, my father was a policeman in Newport, and um, Hollywood came to town to film 
The Great Gatsby with uh, Robert Redford and Mia Farrow. And so they went to the police station and um, asked if, you know, anyone there had kids and they were all Irishmen. So they had a lot of kids and um, <laughs> all the, uh, all the policemen brought their kids to a, to a, you know, a showing uh, where we would be extras. And so I was an extra in the movie with um, actually three or four of my other friends. And uh, the scene was, we wrote uh, swear words on a bench with a, with a piece of uh, charcoal um, so it's it pretty interesting that, that that whole scene took about three seconds, if that, but took probably four days to shoot. So that was my my experience with Hollywood. <laughs> well, I'm glad it, it took you in a different path. And uh, I've been I've enjoyed working with you in the environmental field. So, uh, um, one thing is, is we often stress to clients the uh, the importance of really knowing what your facility does and how it does it. And, and you really need to know that to, to be able to manage your facilities, environmental health and safety issues. I mean, right. it sounds, sounds like to be, you know, it's common sense. Uh, I, I mean, if you don't know what you do and how you do it, how do you know what regulations apply, what permits you need, so on and so forth. And in fact, facility knowledge is, is one of the core four requirements that, that we identify that really must be met in order for you to have any success in managing these very diverse environmental health and safety issues. And Bob, you have a unique experience of being involved, you know, on both sides of the coin, if you will, both on the manufacturing side and the EHS side at facilities. Can you kind of shed, shed some light on the importance of really understanding your facility and its processes in, in order to get a better handle on environmental health and safety issues? Sure. I, I actually don't know how you could be good in one field without knowing the other. I don't know how you could be a good plant engineer without understanding environmental regulations and vice versa, because they, they really go hand in hand um, for facility operations. And, and so that's, to, to have an understanding of both is, is really helpful, um, not only in, in coming up with a, a solution to, to a problem, but also um, being able to clearly explain the issue to management, and then convince them to, you know, you know, appropriate funds to, to get the job done. Um, there's, you know, an example I have is um, what started out as a cost savings project at a paper mill for the wastewater machine. Um, you know, how to take money out of that process, which is pretty expensive. It's a was a rotary vacuum filter, and uh, so we dove into the process and. From an engineering side, we've identified all the inputs to the wastewater stream generation. We you know, identified the sources and mapped it out, their process map, and then made changes to the system to eliminate freshwater inputs or to reuse wastewater in areas that we could. As a result, we reduced the volume generated in that mill by about 18%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 18% of less diatomaceous earth, 18% less labor. You know, it's, it really had a, a big impact. Today, that mills, they still go around looking for ways to, uh, to reduce the wastewater generation. So that's, that's one example of being on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, knowing the process and understand the regulations at the same time. Yeah, and often what we find when we go into facilities that, and these facilities are having 
problems with compliance with EHS issues is the manufacturing end thinks the EHS programs or people are real, you know, pains in the ass, if you will. You know, they, they're a bottleneck. They slow things down. Uh, they slow manufacturing down. So that interrelation there, you know, where, where one side knows exactly what the other's doing. And your point is perfect that you don't know how the heck that job could get done without the knowledge on both sides. And it can't get done <laughs> without that knowledge. Right. And, and there's plenty of examples out there for that. Um, right. I, I think, I think we can all relate on, on how important preventive maintenance is for the manufacturing end at a facility. But can preventive maintenance also help with managing your environmental health and safety issues? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we want to learn from our mistakes, right, and, and hopefully not repeat them. Um, and one of the things that I don't think many people take advantage of you know, environmental folks, EHS folks, is the um, the computerized maintenance management systems that are out there. Uh, I think people have the perception that they're only for you know the maintenance staff and the engineering staff to make sure that this gets oiled or that coupling gets checked. And in the plants that that I operate in, um, we use that system for EHS issues as well. And um, an example is. We had compliance issues with, again, wastewater, and um, where we would be out of spec for pH. And you know, you dive into it, and we found out that the root cause was that the the pH probes would fail after about a year. And so you would you might tell yourself, well, I'm going to remember to do that next year. Well, uh, you know, things come and go, and you forget. And so we put it in the um, the computerized maintenance uh, system to remind us to, to change the probes. There might be seven or eight probes in the system, so you do it on some rotating basis. Uh, once we implemented that, our um, non-compliance issues for pH probes disappeared. And, you know, so we not only did that in, in the one plant that had the issue, but we rolled it out to the other plants as well to say, here, here's, here's a learning tip, uh, you know, consider it for your system as well. Um, we put our, environmental calendar, so to speak, into the um, computerized maintenance management system as well. And that would be, you know, tier two is due or, you know, uh, right to know needs to be, um, you know, retraining on right to know and SARA 313. All those things that, that roll out at the beginning of the year are in the system as reminders. Um, and so it, it's it's good because when you put in a let's call it an environmental PM, you can add text or attach documents that explains the process. So hopefully you're building a system that um, other folks can come in and learn and use, and it's not just, you know, put on one person's shoulders to to uh, to complete that. It, there's enough data there that other folks can pick it up or help out, you know, if that person's not around. Yeah, that's... that's uh... Not doing that documentation is is a, a big issue we come across, especially if, you know, like you said, it falls on one person's shoulders. And what happens if that person leaves, you know, right. retires or goes to another facility? Uh, all that knowledge is gone, that institutional knowledge. And to, to document things goes a long way. And also it, it uh, 
the communications aspect of this is 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 uh is pretty significant and and what what you know we've we've uh communications is also one of the core four requirements we've identified and uh and the one thing that I know about you is is you don't have just one facility to worry about. You have multiple facilities to worry about. So uh, can you elaborate on the importance of communications, uh, maybe some obstacles you may have faced along the way, and any advantages that, that exist if you, you have sister facilities within the organization? Sure. This is, a, this is a big one for us, too. And unfortunately, a lot of mills operate behind walls and, and there's not a lot of sharing going on and you, you're going to have you got to break that down you, you got to open up the lines of communication and share the wealth or in this case knowledge um one of the things that we do not only do i go around and, and travel to different mills and you know hear and, and see different things but we also have uh, routine conference calls like a monthly conference call where everybody you know, there's a little set agenda and everybody talks about what, you know, what they did the previous month. And invariably, someone will bring up, you know, oh, I had this spill and, you know, we've come to find out it was a diaphragm pump that blew a, you know, a diaphragm. And um, in those calls, everybody hears that and then somebody might have a solution. That, that was actually a case. And it happened to me in, in Pennsylvania, same thing. And we found a um, a device that you can put on a diaphragm pump to indicate that the, the diaphragm has indeed failed, which would prevent air from going into the system where you don't want it to go into. And so I brought that up on the call and, and said I would forward that to this person. And everybody else on the call says, can you give it to me? Can you give it to me? And so um, it's just once you get through the initial awkwardness of a conference call and and getting everybody together, the, the conversation really starts to take off. And um, we get to share, you know, um, our issues and our problems and maybe some solutions. A big piece of that is that you, you expand the, the pool of, of resources. I might not have the answer, but I might know of a vendor that could help out. And so that's, that's where these, these conversations come up. There was another example of, um, noise abatement, and I've been probably using this one for over 20 years. We, we spent a fair lot, amount of money um, designing enclosures on trim blowers to, to reduce, you know, the, uh, the noise and brought it from probably, I forget the exact numbers, but probably, say, 86 down to 82 dB. And so that's pretty effective. Um, and, and like I said, spent a fair amount of money, had that had that binder with all the design details in it. And I've been using that binder for years, going to, you know, going to another plant. They said, well, we've got a noise problem. I said, well, here, try this. And just reusing the same information and um, actually saving money because you don't have to go out to a vendor and and do that design work over and over and over again. And we've expanded it. My, my enclosures are fairly small. We put them on some big applications and documented the, uh, you know, the effect of some by reducing the the, uh, the ambient noise level. So it, it works. Yeah, I remember one time <clears throat> we were working together at, at one mill and uh, a line went down at another mill and they didn't have the part to, to get the line up and running. But you happened to have it in, in inventory at the mill we were at. 
and you just FedExed it overnight uh, or even same day. And, you know, they were back in business pretty quickly rather than waiting for a, a vendor to supply that part. So right. yep. even, even the exchange of spare parts is helpful here. That's right. It's just, uh, you know, reach out to, to your own plants, your sister plants, and, and see if, if they can help. That happens often. Um, plant goes down for, you know, they, they lost a transformer and they only know one vendor to go to to, um, to try to source a new one. And so that the call came to me and I said, try these folks out in the Midwest. And sure enough, they, they had the transformer that they needed. And, and um, you know, they purchased it and put back up and running sooner uh, than relying on their vendor. And that's just, that's just luck. But, um, but it helps to, to ask for help once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, more mistakes uh, are made by not wanting to say, I don't know, rather than saying, I don't know. And you get, you get, uh, you get help, you know, Uh, we've worked on property and business transactions over the years from both the buying and the selling end. And, and most folks listening, you know, are going to experience their facility, their business, their organization being bought or, or another company uh, or their, their company buying another facility and integrating that, those resources. And I know the time I've spent with you during environmental due diligence where you, you know, I, 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 as a consultant, I was looking at it from the compliance and environmental due diligence, potential exposures, but you also looked at it from the process end. And I learned so much from that in terms of, okay, this is, this is what they're doing now. And we're going to have to meet certain criteria in the future, such as VOC content and codings, uh, and and you started to look at this from the standpoint of you know what's the what improvements do we have to make how much capital influx is going to be needed to make sure we're we can meet these criteria in the future and um, I just wanted to kind of review that briefly with you to kind of impress upon our listeners the need to have somebody that understands the process involved when you're going through a due diligence process, the due diligence evaluation? Yeah, it's, it's very important, right? It's to give both the buyer and the seller a clear view of, of what's there and what, what some of the risks are. But I, I think in the case that you're mentioning, um, we were acquiring a mill and um, they were solving coatings at the site and the, um, they weren't going to meet the regulations in the future. Uh, the VOC content was just too high, and our our plans for the mill were to um, increase volume there. And so um, we knew from other facilities how to cope with aqueous technology, but what equipment was needed. And um, we uh, contacted vendors, got some quotes on what it would take to put it in the, the mill we were going to acquire, got some budget estimates for that. And um, actually went to the state and uh, entered into a consent agreement to give us time to uh, to buy this capital and install it and phase out the, the solvent equipment. So really, you know, you need somebody that can that can have that vision and be able to execute it, right? Um, and and then in the end, what happened was, you know, the, the deal was successful. The buyer was happy. The seller was happy. 
And, um, you know, just as importantly, uh, the mill had a future that it's still running today, as a matter of fact. And uh, all solid coatings have been removed from the site. So um, so that was a, a success story for that particular location. It, it, it's, it's so important to understand the process, not just the regulations. <laughs> um, right. We all have demanding schedules and, and limited time on our hands. And, and as a result, that it's one of the biggest issues we, we always hear relative to environmental matters is trying to stay up to date on regulations. Um, what do you believe makes some successful in understanding the complex regulatory environment while others struggle uh, to get through that? Actually, I, you know, I, I think that's uh, <clears throat> networking and, and um, you know, certainly you can, you can subscribe to, to different, um, you know, services to, to give you an update, but, but typically they're, Pretty tough to read and and and, uh, and understand. I, I've been successful just having good contacts in the industry, such as yourself and other vendors, that um, that keep me aware of things that might impact uh, our different mills. And, and it's because of their understanding of the mills that they would say, "Well, okay, you know, there's a, there's going to be a change in the regulation for benzene. Well, that's got nothing to do with with our mills, so we're not going to." Let Bob, you know, we don't need to inform Bob about that. But if it's germane to our mills, <clears throat> often they'll they'll send me an email saying, "Hey, Bob, take a look at this. Uh, you might be interested uh, in in talking about it with us." And that's that's typically where I get the heads up, or like I said, some subs- online subscriptions or or you know news alerts from the different agencies uh, and other colleagues. Um, you know, that's on this environmental call that I talk about the monthly call, um, what happens in one state sooner or later is going to happen in another. And, you know, we're learning about, um, in the Midwest, a lot of regulations coming out around the use of, um, fertilizers and how that runoff affects the, the, uh, surface waters. And, and that's a big deal for us. Um, because we have some chemicals that go into the waste stream that enter the surface waters as well. So uh, we're we're part of that um, study group in the Midwest to to make sure that everybody that's contributing to this is heard. Based on uh, you know your your uh, experience and uh, the many the many challenges you faced over the years, what's your number one piece of advice you can offer our listeners when in dealing with potential environmental challenges? Um. I guess what keeps me sane in, in the game is that I learned a while ago, and it was, it was through a um, factory mutual uh, engineer. I, mean, I was pretty young to the game, and he came into the mill to do an inspection. And um, I, I think everybody listening will appreciate this. I was defensive and guarded with my words, and, um, and he noticed that. And what didn't take long to say, hey, Bob, come on, let's go outside. And I wasn't sure what that was going to lead to. But he um, he went to his car and he pulled out some data sheets from his trunk. And he says, can we sit down? And what happened was he sat down and he explained to me with these data sheets why he was looking at this particular issue, what the guidance was on it, and what were some of the potential remedies. And um, it was like a, a light bulb went off. And so 
Um, what I'm trying to say is if you understand the reasoning behind the standard, the regulation, the law, it's a whole lot easier to digest it and, and internalize it and say, okay, that's what it is. I'm going to figure out a way to deal with it or, um, you know, minimize our, the, the impact it has on our mill. So it's, it's not, a lot of people fight it and you're not going to, you know, stand a chance. So understanding, understanding it is the best advice I could get somebody is find out where they're coming from, you know, try to understand their point of view and then uh, apply it to your application. That's sound advice. Um, on a personal note, can you share with our audience an interest or hobby that you enjoy doing with your free time? Sure. I, I like to ski. Looking forward to doing that in a few weeks. I, I swim. That's, uh, that's my quiet time. You know, when you swim, there's, there's no cell phone, there's no computer. So that's, I, I really enjoy that. And I, uh, I take uh, my dog for long walks in the woods. <laughs> he, I think he likes that more than I do. But. You, you, uh, you live in a beautiful part of the country. Uh, up in the Northeast, uh, where uh, New England area, where that's a that's a great hobby to have. <laughs> yep. Um, hey, Bob, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. If if people want to get in touch with you, um, how would they do that? Uh, my email address is Robert Murphy M U R P H Y at Nina N E E N A H dot com. And uh, we'll include that link on the uh, the podcast page uh, when or uh, at the bottom of the uh, the title for the podcast interview. And uh, and thanks again, Bob. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend with us today. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to the to today's show. And until we share some time together, uh, some time together again. Stay safe and uh, and be well. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Mark. The Business of Environment podcast is sponsored by Envision Environmental. Do you have environmental gorillas hiding in plain sight at your facility? Chances are you do, and you don't even know it. Discover how to assess your environmental, health, and safety risks, and protect yourself from fines and liabilities before there's trouble. Download a free copy of our book, Overlooked, Hunting the Invisible Environmental Gorilla, at envisionenvironmental.com slash freebook.